Hello and welcome to another episode of Design for Change. I'm Stefan and I'm joined here today by Professor Werner Lang from the Technical University in Munich. He's the head of the Chair for Energy Efficient, Sustainable Building and Planning, the University's Vice President for Sustainable Transformation and Director of the Oscar Vermiller Forum. Him being an architect focusing on sustainability, we talked about where the building sector stands in regards to climate change, what cities of the future need to be able to handle, and what he hopes his students take away from his lectures to have a positive influence on our future. We have to have a part of daily Sea levels will rise in the next 30 years by the We same amount as they did in the last 100 years. Still to this day, fossil The United fuels. States will withdraw from the Paris climate what accord. What can we do? What can we do that we're not already doing? What can we do? This is... This is... Welcome, welcome, welcome. Welcome to... As I design, design. Or change. To, to start our conversation, for me, it will be really interesting to get to know how you focused on sustainability as an architect? I think it still has to do, I think, with the way I was raised. You know, so I, like in 73, when I was 12, there was the first energy crisis. So there was no oil available. So there was no cars on the street. And I realized there's a strong impact and somehow it's it's influencing our life. And then the second one in 79 was the same thing. And then when I started doing architecture, I realized that actually it's us as architects using materials and of course using a lot of energy running the buildings. And so this kind of connection of, hey, we could run out of oil one day and we are part of the solution in a way. This is what took me to really get into that direction of sustainability. You, you mentioned that you then studied architecture. I mean, when you look into the news today, you really see the urgency regarding climate change. Was it the same back then? Was it just, okay, we're running out of oil? Uh, but I, from my perspective, I can imagine it wasn't as big as, of a topic, at least climate change, back then. No, not really. You're right. I mean, climate change was not there, so to say. I mean, we still didn't get the numbers and we didn't realize that there might be something about CO2 in the atmosphere which might affect us. So that was not an issue at all. But to be so dependent basically on other countries with regard to their oil, and we, we of course only had coal, so to say, at that time, you know, and we didn't want to run our heating systems on coal because it was dirty, it was smelly, it was a lot of work, you know, so that was basically the sense of urgency. So we, we all felt that we had to move towards using renewable energy, so thermal collectors uh, were a big issue back then, even winter gardens using passive use of solar energy as a means to bring the energy consumption down and to harvest solar radiation for heating the building even in wintertime. So these were the first things which actually changed architecture. And so, yes, it was very, very urgent, I think even bigger. I mean, we had a car-free Sunday and we had several car-free Sundays. If you would propose today to stop traffic completely, you know, that would be a no-go. Back then it was fairly easy. And I actually enjoyed it using a, a freeway, you know, by bike uh, where there was no car. That was really fun. Mm -hmm. And... Um, I still am really interested in your studies. Did this topic then right away shape your, well, bachelor's uh, back then? Or uh, was this something that you were influenced also by maybe through uh, peers? 
Well, I think uh, during my studies, basically, we even had to ask our professor uh, who did building physics and building technologies to really do some teaching, let's say, at least on solar collectors, on PV, on the use of wind. And especially with regard to thermal collectors, he said he's never getting into this because it's not worth it. It's not financially feasible. You know, we don't need that. And so there was a complete rejection of our ideas as students shifting the teaching towards renewables. And I found that shocking. So during my master's studies, then I had the chance to do a really crazy project where the professor um, asked us to come up with a situation where we, which we never had encountered, encountered before. And so so it was kind of difficult. So somebody said, you know, there's no gravity. And I felt like, damn it, that's really cool to think about a world without gravity. You know, so that chance is taken. And so after some thinking, I came up with the idea that we had already reached the ecological catastrophe. So so the, li the world was not livable anymore. And so I came up with the idea of reacting to that by having a complete energy um, sufficient, um, food sufficient self-supply through a huge greenhouse structure, so to say. And I tried to find out how many plants of what kind and what kind of animals of what kind do we need in order to create this kind of artificial arc, if you want to say, you know, which is only running on solar energy, so to say, and, and to survive through that way. And that was, of course, I guess back then, pretty superficial but it made me really think about the relationship of actually building and supporting ourselves even as kind of mankind you know so and I found that really intriguing so I had my first photovoltaic cell in my hand from Siemens back then they gave me so the one of the first ones available for me available as a, as a young student and that was pretty cool mm -hmm. for, for me I mean I, I know this but uh, for our listeners can you explain how architecture is currently affecting climate? Because we already mentioned climate change quite a bit. I think we probably know all the numbers. So basically, with regard to the CO2 emissions, the way we run our buildings, with regard to heating and ventilation and even cooling, we are responsible for about 30% of the energy consumption, which is still pretty much fossil, right? So we are also responsible for 30% of the CO2 emissions of the total economy so that's a really big share and if we count the material use in in with this in the sense of what we call gray energy so that's the energy you need for producing basically concrete for instance or steel or whatever so that's the gray energy if you count that in it's really 40 percent in both ways so 40 percent of basically fossil fuel and also 40 percent of co2 emissions and there's a major share of waste also produced by by the building sector so 55 percent for instance in bavaria and that's true for most of europe also is basically the the waste is actually go, going back to the building industry mm -hmm. if if right now we focus the conversation on the Western European building industry, mm -hmm. because that's where we are right now. Yep. Um, and this in regards to urbanization and energy efficient building techniques. Um, in almost all larger cities, there's a critical housing shortage. I think this is quite well known. Uh, but how can this demand then be supplied while um, not further contributing to the current uh, CO2 emissions um, that currently are coming from the building sector? 
I mean, you're touching a really very, very important point. Uh, I think, you know, our, our minister of, of housing or of the building sector in Berlin, she was actually announcing that she wanted to build at least 300,000 housing units each year. And so we at our chair did a calculation. So if you build all this new housing, basically, even if you build it completely in timber, which is actually using CO2 and trees, grow on CO2, so to say. It's, it needs water, it needs solar energy and CO2. And so the, the trees and every plant does that, basically is absorbing the CO2 and it's, it's storing the, 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 the sea, so to say, the carbon in the plant. You know, So even if you use wood, which would basically store a lot of carbon in the building sector, um, the, the additional CO2 emissions for running the building would be already prohibitive, meaning that after three years, we would not be able to build any new buildings anymore because we are emitting already so much CO2 that we are going to be really fail the 1.5 degree centigrade goal of the European Commission. So we don't want to have more than uh, an increase of more than 1.5 degrees centigrade. And so we have a limited amount of CO2 we can emit. But basically, it's limited by the Earth's capacity to absorb the CO2 through plants. And that's the, the seas, basically, the oceans, as well as the, the green mass on land, like forests and so on. When we focus on the one and a half uh, degree centigrade of Celsius, um, I think, so now I think we know, uh, even with our most optimistic way of looking at it, we're going to pretty much fail this um, by a large degree. Uh, I think right now two to two and a half degree, uh, degrees are the goal. Um, how how do you see that for yourself? I mean, it seems like it, at least in the building sector or in the construction sector, the answers are not uh, aren't missing. The answers are there, what can mm -hmm. be done. Mm -hmm. um, How, on, that's maybe a more personal question. How, what does that uh, do to you when you feel like, why isn't anybody asking me this or why isn't anybody using the advice, my knowledge uh, or the knowledge of, of uh, your colleagues uh, to reach those goals when it could be done? I mean, of course, on the one hand, it's really driving me crazy to see that there's the opportunities out there to really enhance the use of renewable energies, to make the buildings really easily more energy efficient, you know, and even realizing that on the on the long run, so to say, if you look, take the life cycle of a building of 50 years or 100 years, it doesn't really matter. It pays back, you know, so it's even economically feasible. This is, of course, driving me crazy, knowing that all of this is, is reality and we are still not doing it. And so uh, on the one hand, it's, it's frustrating, clearly. But on the other hand, I'm really optimistic that we can really achieve the goal. I think the, what it really takes is common sense and not only common sense with regard to straightforward thinking in a way, but also common sense in the meaning with the meaning of common. It takes our whole society of getting together and agreeing on that we really want to save not the planet. The planet will always exist. It's basically saving ourselves, right? And so we are already experiencing major damage being done through storms, through flooding and all of this. I mean, the last year had been just really 
terrible with regard to lives lost and a lot of of basically property destroyed you know a lot of people lost their their base of living and so i think in the end even as society we are paying more money for the damage than we would actually need to pay for really getting our our systems running completely on sustainable sources meaning renewable energies, and really shifting also the use of material towards circularity on the one hand. You know, I mean, you, glass doesn't grow on trees. That's pretty clear. So we need still material which we, which we produce with using a lot of energy like glass or steel or even cement so that we will we'll continue to do that. But all the other options we have, you know, building is residential building with timber. I mean, we can even build high-rise buildings now with timber. We have to use these opportunities, couple that with renewable energies, think in terms of circularity. And I think this is this is very simple means and they're there and we have really just to use them. Mm -hmm. So what does that then do to you when you, I have this in my intro and I played this for you as well, Uh, Donald Trump saying uh, the United States is dropping out of the uh, the Paris Climate uh, Agreement. Is this a slap to your face in a way, or do you just try to ignore it and move forward and focus on the things you can do? Well, of course, that's frustrating. On the other hand, I mean, knowing how the last elections went, you know, so you have still the other part of of the Americas, and and you're talking about the United States now. So there's. 50% of the people actually thinking in a different way. And so I'd rather be not frustrated by Trump. I mean, it's obviously pretty frustrating the way he acts and thinks and talks and all of that. So I'd rather, you know, get away with that somehow and focusing on the chance of really bringing these people together. So so hoping that there might be different uh, elections where, where the, the community actually sees it or the population sees it as a chance to really shift the economy to generate new businesses and create also really a kind of a sustainable, um, long-lasting new kind of economy which is clean, which is um, benign with our, our planet, so to say, with our biosphere, and which is also somehow saving our own existence as mankind. Mm -hmm. Since we're already now on the global scale, what are, well, on the one hand, uh, poor examples of how architecture is responding to climate change on an urban scale, um, but maybe to go back into the more positive mindset, What are positive examples of sustainable cities and that, that can be taken as role models uh, for other um, urban developments? Well, first of all, I think the question is, is very, very important because we are already urban. So almost 60% of the world's population is living in, system, in cities and that's increasing rapidly, especially in the global south. You know, in Asia, in India, we see an, a tremendous growth of the cities. So it's a burden, you know, because of the, the, the economy and also the atmosphere and all, all of that. It's only developing. So living in those cities is not necessarily great. So there is a lot of change needed there. But on the other hand, you have so many people living in a kind of very space efficient way. I mean, the density is high. Um, you could also implement, let's say, ways of, of balancing energy. You could take excess heat from a server plant or whatever. So the city in as such is a really great opportunity to use in order to really bring the energy consumption down, 
use the rich cultural life um, to enhance your own quality of life, introduce more green infrastructure, meaning more trees and shrubs and and meadows and so on in the city. Um, also thinking in terms of water to in, uh, enhance the quality of life. So I think that the chances to actually use the highly populated urban spaces um, to really take a lever to improve the situation, run the system on circular ideas, run the system on renewable energies. That will be a tremendous chance to shift towards a sustainable future really quickly. So I think the cities are key. Um, and we're seeing that already. You were asking about positive examples. Of course, if you, if you think of cities like Amsterdam or Copenhagen, it's always the same cities or Stockholm. Um, they are the ones who reinvented themselves with regard to mobility. Um, Copenhagen reinvented itself not only with regard to uh, mobility, but also with regard to the use of blue infrastructure. So they really um, cleaned their all their water surfaces. So it's so easy now to jump into the river or to the Bay Area and have a great swim because the water is almost drinking water quality. And so the city is embracing the idea of sustainability as a chance to enhance the quality of life. So I would say these cities are really very, very hopeful. And even their energy system, when it comes to CO2 emissions, they're really shifting it heavily towards renewable energies. There's a lot of wind. Um, there's a lot of heat recovery systems. So th there's also technology there. Like I said before, you're shifting energy instead of just wasting it. So they're doing a lot of things, right? So I would look into those cities who are far more advanced than our own cities in, in Germany. C cities, I think, definitely have that, that um, or definitely are a melting pot of where sustainability in regards to social, economic, and environmental aspects um, can shift to something positive. Though, I mean, the majority of uh, people living on this planet are living near in cities near coastlines. Mm. And we are already seeing this. I mean, this isn't a new pheno phenomenon uh, uh, in the United States uh, with hurricanes coming in right, or flooding, yeah. but mm. also in Asia. Mm. But this will definitely increase. Uh, uh, any any scientist you ask in regards to climate change says also in Europe there will be um, hurricanes possible or tornadoes, yeah, sure. flooding. Yeah. Mm. Uh, how can architecture respond to this? How can um, can we maybe have architecture in the future that um, can respond to mass migration uh, from um, yeah, the coastlines to the inland? Well, I mean, before I start, talk about uh, adaptation, which is, which is the issue you're just raising right now, first of all, we still have to continue with regard to measures to protect the climate. So we still have to bring the CO2 emissions down. So to say the earth is lost, what all we have to do is building... Uh, building new buildings on piles, you know, so that the water can't get to them. I think that's not the solution. So first of all, we have to continue to, what I said before, really shift the energy system completely towards renewable and circularity. Then with regard to adaptation, uh, what we see already in the cities uh, where there's no major flooding so far, you know, like Munich, I mean, we are on a, on, on a level of 500 meters above the sea level, so no 
no, no big challenge there. Of course, we have a, we have basically a risk of flooding, right? So we have experienced that already in the past, especially all the cities down, river downwards of the Isar River, of the, of the Danube River. There was some really heavy destruction through flooding. And so there to really basically enhance the embankments of the rivers and renature also the rivers, what has been done basically in Munich, uh, where we are, we are, we used to have this kind of canal we pushed the river Isar through and now it's really an almost natural looking landscape where you have let's say the the shore of the river built in a natural way so there's the fish is basically back the, the quality of the water is better because there's more turbulences there's more more oxygen basically in the water and so on so there's a lot of measures which are basically enhancing um the, or reducing the, the risk of flooding on the one hand, so very technical aspect, so to say. But on the other hand, let's say the, the biodiversity um, has increased tremendously. So we can almost uh, talk about these measures like renaturing uh, our, our local biosphere there by technical measures. And I think that's a huge chance to en enhance the quality of life today the biodiversity today and still get ready for let's say a future while where while the risk might increase during the next 10 to 15 20 years so we, this combination uh, that's something i really like to enhance the quality of life today with these measures and getting ready for some tougher times in the future is then uh, uh, sustainable sustainable development something that is mainly influenced by politicians? Is it by investors, uh, individuals who build their own home? Uh, where are the stakeholders or who needs to shift in their thinking uh, in, in order to achieve those goals that you have? Well, I mean, uh, you're almost addressing um, the, the past couple of weeks where we saw this kind of heavy discussion about new heating systems like heat pumps and so on yeah, Germany, uh, yeah. in Germany. And so, um, and I think probably the situation won't be too different in other countries. I mean, as long as we're talking about uh, democratic countries and I'm, and I'm a big defender of democracy, this and freedom. So we need that. I think actually it's not, in my view, it's not so much the politicians, but it's us as citizens who have to understand that whatever party we are talking about, we, we have to follow the measures we have been discussing with regard to this complete transformation. I mean, if we only talk about the, the building sector today, but the transformation of the building sector. We have to rethink and not in a kind of crazy way, cannot be done and so on. In a very simple way, like I just mentioned, renewable systems with regard to energy supply, with regard to the materials and whether and with the materials it's not re renewable possible, you do circularity. So we have the systems there and the people, every citizen has to understand that the measures are simple, they're doable, they're economically absolutely feasible and that we can do it now and the let's say our economy has to understand that it's a really big business model to make this shift towards sustainable resilient systems which will be very very helpful to save our own existence when you talk to those stakeholders again politicians uh, uh, the, the industry or individuals or even your students, uh, 
who needs most convincing? Because I, am, I understand that with the politicians, it's also sometimes maybe unpopular to uh, right now uh, to talk about sustainability. We, we saw that with the Green Party here in Germany, how they uh, really took a hit on their image just with this topic of trying to yeah, do, something crazy. Yeah. Yeah, do something sustainable. Mm. Um, and I think uh, from the, the, the building sector, the industry will always pass that on, that they need to do the most... Uh, economical thing and that's why they cannot change the way of building individuals also want um, have their own agendas which sometimes don't overline with sustainability how do you um, engage with these different groups in order to make them understand it's it's not a it's not an opinion but it's a fact uh, and this needs to be done mm. i think what what i have started pretty early is to to basically rethink my own communication. So I think it's not so much a matter of actually trying to convince people, but first of all, to understand the needs of the people, their, their basically knowledge um, they might have about certain technical aspects and so on. So you have to think about, you know, in communication, it's always, you know, yourself as a sender so to say and as a receiver that's the person you're talking to so you first of all have to think about what the needs and what the, what the interests of your fellow human being is and whether there's a politician or whether it's another citizen a friend or somebody i don't know i try to to first of all to argue in such a way that the other person really does understand what the options are you know so we have to not change the language in in order to deceive someone no that's not the way but really to tell the truth and really make the other person understand what kind of solutions what kind of options we have what what would happen if we have a kind of a business as usual scenario or whether really we try to get into carbon neutrality you know what a life cycle means so these are all the things you have to really explain so that your fellow human being understands what's going on and my experience is that most of the people actually do understand it and you also have to of course accept the fact that you also have to talk about the economy of, of the costs and and so there's no tiptoeing around critical topics i think but you have to address all these issues clearly whether it's about the ecology or whether it's about the economy you know and also of course social socio-cultural aspects meaning health um, meaning um, society meaning fairness meaning governance um, so that's all issues which you have to address to make people understand that really want to do something good for the future and for their lives in the future communication as a final question for now for me it would be interesting so you have now this audience here um, what would you like them to keep in the back of their heads well I think first of all probably we don't have to emphasize too much that we're really facing one of the biggest challenges mankind has ever faced you know so it's not it's not an easy thing you know and it's not something which will go away if you don't think about it close your eyes it doesn't go away it's there so first of all it's the necessity to act and act means everyone it's not pinpointing you know pointing fingers to someone it's them the politicians have to solve it no everyone everyone has to solve it by 
changing, first of all, understanding what's going on, then understanding what the options are, and then changing each one of us's opinion, thinking about consumption, about the choices we make with regard to renewable or not, with regard to wasting energy, wasting material. So we have to really change our thinking completely. I don't mean that you have to change your lifestyle completely, but maybe you want to question yourself whether you have to take a plane for flights within Europe, right? I think that's not necessary. Uh, you have to make a choice with regard to the use of a car, the size of a car, right? Is it really necessary that you need 100 square meters per person? We don't have that typically here in Germany, but we are now getting close to 60 square meters per person in the area around Munich. So it's all our own personal expectations, our own behavior, and that really has to change. I'm not saying that the quality of life will change, but I think this excessive use of material, this excessive use of fossil fuel, and this kind of waste-oriented society, I think that has to stop pretty soon, if not now. Thank you for listening to this episode. Make sure to check out Werner's work via the links in the show notes and visit the website of the Oscar von Miller Forum. There, you can find a large library of lectures available for you to see, and there are new ones coming up soon. So if you're in Munich, I highly recommend you stop by the forum on one of those dates.